we ask once again for your spirit to guide us in your truth, Lord, and that we would be able to pull from this text what you want us uh, to pull, Um, not the words that I've planned, but the words that you've planned, uh, God, that, that you would pierce our hearts and our minds and you would challenge us, Lord, as we look at the life of David. And uh, though he had so many uh, successful moments, uh, he also had so many um, unsuccessful moments, God. And I pray we would learn from both of those things, specifically as we look at his relationship with uh, his son Absalom or lack thereof. God, I pray that you would uh, help us understand, God, how to how to do relationship and how to deal with issues and whatever else you want us to pull from this text, I pray that that would happen. Lord, so please speak to each of us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Uh, so if you recall, uh, this is a very dark time in David's life, right? It started back when uh, he wasn't where he was supposed to be in Second Samuel chapter 11. He wasn't out to battle. That led to lust, which led to adultery, which led to murder. David finds himself in this deep hole, uh, but he doesn't really realize he's in this deep hole until Nathan the prophet comes and confronts him in Second Samuel chapter 12. And through this confrontation comes what? Confession. David confesses his sins and through this confession comes cleansing. We see part of that cleansing process happen in 2 Samuel chapter 12 where David's firstborn from Bathsheba ends up dying. But it doesn't end there. If you recall, there was a prophecy in 2 Samuel chapter 12 from the prophet Nathan that said the sword is not going to depart from your house, meaning there's going to be division, there's going to be strife, there's going to be issues in your household. Well, one of those issues we see back in 2 Samuel chapter 13, it started with Amnon having lust towards his sister Tamar. Instead of trying to fight this lust, he gave into it, leading ultimately up to the rape of Tamar. Well, this didn't sit very well with Absalom, Amnon's half-brother, Tamar's full-blooded brother. So Absalom devises a plan over two years and ends up having Amnon killed. He murders him. Well, he knows that this is against the Levitical law. So to try to prevent himself from uh, uh, getting capital punishment and facing that consequence, he ends up fleeing. That picks us up where we're at here in 2 Samuel chapter 14. Absalom's been gone for several years, and we're going to see David's mighty man, the commander of his army, Joab, come up with this crafty plan to help David and Absalom reconcile. And David and Absalom will eventually partially reconcile, but with much reluctancy on David's part. That is why the title of this teaching is Reluctant Reconciliation. Reluctant Reconciliation. Have you ever had an issue in your life with another individual? Have you ever had an issue? No. 
Have you ever had, have you ever had an issue in your life with another individual, um, where you, uh, contemplated whether or not you should reconcile with that individual? Uh, should, should I be back in relationship with this person considering what they did to me? Is this the type of person that I'm supposed to be unified with or not? Sometimes that can be very difficult. Biblically speaking, we're called to forgive all people. We're called to forgive everyone from anything that they've ever done to us. Reconciliation is actually the next step from forgiveness. Reconciliation doesn't always happen with forgiveness. If you want to definition of reconciliation, I'll give you one. It's a change in relationship from enmity to harmony. Okay. So you got an issue with someone, right? And we're called to resolve the issue. We're called to forgive that person. But reconciliation, as I mentioned, is the next step from forgiveness. It means unification, harmony with that individual. And there's a reality that certain people you just can't be in harmony with. There are certain people that you just can't be unified with. There are certain people that just don't want to be unified with you. And then there's other people that you just shouldn't be in a relationship with all around. So how do we understand this or how do we deal with this biblical term reconciliation and the theology and doctrine that comes alongside with it? Well... We're going to look at some of that in this text and we'll also learn, yeah, certain relationships we should pursue reconciliation and other relationships. It's better off if I just don't enter into relationship with this person. I might need to come to them and confess some things or I might need to forgive them before the Lord. But reconciliation is something different. However, in this text, it's about the reconciliation between David and Absalom. Personally, I believe that David should have reconciled with Absalom long before this. Now, we got to understand Absalom had killed one of David's other sons, right? He killed Amnon. So we understand the bitterness and the anger that David is dealing with, and he's confused. How do I deal with this issue? Do I have my son killed? Do I forgive him? But need I remind you that David killed one of God's other children? David killed one of God's other sons. His name was Uriah. And what did God do? God didn't banish him. God didn't banish him. Yes, he cleansed him. Yes, he disciplined him. But he didn't kick him out of the kingdom. No, he pursued relationship with him. He reconciled with David. So as we look at the example that God gave David, I can't see why David is hesitating and reconciling with his son Absalom. It should have happened years ago. That's my personal opinion. It will happen towards the end of this text. But let's get into the text. It's 2 Samuel chapter 14, verse 1. So Joab, the son of Zeruah, perceived that the king's heart was concerned about Absalom. So Joab, he recognized that there's something going on with David, right? There's something going on with the king and his heart towards Absalom. Well, we see back in 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 39, that the king longed to go to Absalom. So there was a part of David that longed to reconcile, but there was this other part that uh, he didn't really want to reconcile. We don't know all that's going on in his heart, but Joab perceives something in his heart. There's the reality that David's going through the 
this internal struggle. He wants to reconcile with his son, but he's not not taking the steps to make that happen. He's going through a difficult time. But despite this difficult time, we see no indication that David is going to pursue reconciliation until someone lights a fire under him. And that's exactly what Joab is going to do. He's going to take matters into his own hands. Which poses a question. Why does Joab want David to reconcile with Absalom? We don't know for sure. The text somewhat indicates that perhaps Joab is concerned for the kingdom. That he sees Absalom as a threat. And the longer this division goes on between David and Absalom, uh, the, the more likely there's the chance that there's going to be a civil war. We know there's going to be a civil war uh, anyway. So that could be the concern, that he's concerned for the kingdom. Or Joab could just be being a good friend, and, and he sees David struggling with bitterness and resentment and all these different things, and he wants him to solve the problems of his heart. We don't know for sure, but Joab is determined to make this reconciliation thing happen between David and his son. Look how he does it. It's Second Samuel chapter 14, picking it up in verse 2. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, please pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning apparel. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but act like a woman who has been mourning a long time for the dead. Go to the king and speak to him in this manner. So Joab put the words in her mouth. So Tekoa was a place that was 10 miles south of Jerusalem. He had to find someone that David probably didn't know. So he didn't pick someone in Jerusalem. He found this specific person that wasn't too far away. And he sends for this woman and he gives her this story, which we'll get into later. But the whole point of this story is so that once again, David and Absalom will be reconciled. We see Joab initiating reconciliation between David and Absalom. This is the first of five points. Initiate reconciliation. Initiate reconciliation. There's two parts to this. In Joab's case, it's important for us as we learn from this that we should encourage people to reconcile with other people when we know they have an issue with each other, when we know they have bitterness and resentment and all these different things in their heart and we see that in their lives, like Joab did, like a good friend. Man, you're destroying yourself from the inside out. Why don't you go just talk to that person? Just go make amends with that person. If we're perceiving that as good friends, we should encourage someone to reconcile with an individual that they have an issue with. But there's also a reality that we got to initiate reconciliation with others reconciliation it starts with you it starts with me it starts with the individual if we wait for reconciliation to happen or we wait for the other person to take on the responsibility of reconciliation guess what It might never happen. That's why the Bible puts the burden on us. That's why the Bible puts the responsibility on us. It's Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. This is where uh, uh, Jesus deals with conflict resolution. And one of the first things he says, he says, if your brother or sister sins against you, you confront him. You go confront the issue with the other individual. Let them know what they did to you. You initiate reconciliation. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 
verse 18, 2 Corinthians 5, 18, it says, in light of the cross and the reconciliation that God pursued with man through the death of his son, we too are called to the ministry of reconciliation. He's given us the ministry of reconciliation. In light of God's initiation of reconciliation, we're called to initiate reconciliation with each other. This isn't always easy. In fact, it's hard. Because the first step with reconciliation, it comes with confrontation. There has to be that discussion. The issue uh, must be addressed. And it's not always easy confronting people. Who in this room, there might be some, but I don't think there'll be many. Who in here just loves confrontation? You just love it. Yeah, Adam, I figured that he'd be the one that raised his hand. <laughs> Most people don't enjoy confrontation. It's awkward. Sometimes the man-pleasing thing takes hold, and we don't want the person to not like us if we tell them this thing that they did against us or against someone else. Those, all, all, uh, those conversations aren't usually very pretty conversations. And in fact, it's one of the things that I dislike the most in my Christian walk, having to confront people with issues, having to confront people with sin. But you know what? When I do it and I make that step and I initiate it, there's so much good that comes from it. And if we don't initiate the reconciliation and address the issues, guess what? The issues don't go away. They don't go away until someone steps up and decides, hey, this issue needs to be resolved. This relationship needs to be reconciled. And when we choose to do that, you know what happens? Unity in the body. Unity. The opposite of division. But if we don't pursue reconciliation, unity is not going to happen. Joab, he gets this woman from Tekoa. Look what he tells her. He says, please pretend to be a mourner. And it says he put the words in her mouth. He gave her the story. So the story that she's going to talk about, there's no indication that any of it is true. That's another issue we won't deal with today. But Joab... He convinces this lady to speak to the king with this elaborate story in hopes that David would reconcile with Absalom. Let's get into it. She comes to the king in verse 4, 2 Samuel 14, 4. And when the woman of Tekoa spoke to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and prostrated herself and said, Help, O king. Then the king said to her, What troubles you? And she answered, indeed, I'm a widow. My husband is dead. Now your maidservant had two sons and the two fought with each other in the field and there was no one to part them, but the one struck the other and killed him. Let's break this down. So this woman comes to the king. Now we got to understand culturally, you had uh, various judges and spiritual leaders um, in uh, different cities. And, and you typically went to the uh, leader of your city to deal with these issues. Well, if you thought that the judge of your particular city didn't deal uh, with you justly, then as an Israelite, you had the opportunity to take it right to the king. Why? Because the king was the ultimate judge 
judge of Israel. So the people actually had access to the king if their issue wasn't dealt with appropriately. So this woman, she comes to David with her issue. What's her issue? Well, first of all, she's a widow in mourning, okay? She's a widow. Her husband obviously is gone. But not only that, the story that she gives us is that she has two sons and one of them killed the other one. Okay, this is a serious issue. This woman is obviously giving us a picture of what happened with Amnon and Absalom, right? She has two sons, and one of them killed the other one over a dispute. She's alluding to the truth that is actually going on in David's life, but she continues on. She elaborates. Look at verse 7. And now the whole family has risen up against your maidservant. And they said, deliver whom, him who struck his brother that we may execute him. For the life of his brother whom he killed. And we will destroy the heir also. So they would extinguish my ember that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the earth. She gets to one of the crucial problems of this. Her family, they, the family wants justice, okay? And this was a normal thing. You were actually obligated as a family member, um, if someone wronged your family, remember specifically, if someone killed your family member, murdered them, uh, you were called to avenge their blood. They literally called them the Avengers of Blood, okay? The Avengers of Blood, not like the Avengers, the, the TV show or the movie, you know? The Avengers of Blood, you were called to seek justice and make sure that the law was instilled and the person got the consequence that they deserved. But the issue here is they're all family. And what's going to happen if this woman, she loses both her sons? She already lost her husband, so she's a widow. She got two sons. If she has no more men left in her direct household, she's not looking like, she's not in a pretty situation, right? And that culture, it's not like women had prosperous jobs. If you didn't have a man to look out for you, you were essentially living in poverty. So much so later on in the New Testament, we see the Pharisees uh, taking advantage of the widows. They're actually saying, and hey, 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 this property's too big for you. That's all they had is their property because that was given to them uh, since the Lord separated the property with the different tribes uh, back uh, in Joshua specifically. So the woman still had her property, property but she didn't have the, the, um, the means to take care of the property. So the Pharisees would go to him and say, hey, just sell us the property. We'll give you a real, real good price. They'd rip them off. And then the woman would be left with nothing just to live off of this little bit that they got from their land. So this was a huge issue uh, culturally and obviously personally for this woman. She wouldn't have been able to provide for herself. We can't forget that this is a false story, but it's going to pull the heartstrings of David. Let's look what happens. In 2 Samuel chapter 14, verse 8, Then the king said to the woman, Go to your house, and I will give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, My lord, O king, let the iniquity be on me and on my father's house, and the king and his throne be guiltless. So the king said, Whoever says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall not touch you anymore. Then she said, Please let the king remember the Lord your God, and do not permit the, uh, permit the avenger of blood to destroy any more, lest they destroy my son. And he says, 
as the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. So this story really tugged on the strings of David's heart. So what he says is, though your son deserves murder, we're going to forgive him. We're going to choose mercy over judgment. This is point number two. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That's from James chapter 2 verse 13. If you want to write it down, it says just that. Mercy triumphs over judgment. We got to understand this a little bit better culturally and even Levitically. In the Old Testament, you know, you had certain sins and certain consequences for sins. But the uh, the law didn't address every single thing. That's why the Jews came up with the Mishnah and the Talmud, various commentaries to, well, what about this and what about this and what about this and what about that? So the judge of the city was basically given the responsibility to bind someone to the consequences of the law or loose them of the consequence of the law. That's where we get that term binding and loosing. So say somebody committed a sin And yeah, it lined up with the law, but the certain circumstances dictated that, hey, maybe this person deserves mercy over judgment. The judge was given the authority to say, hey, you're not going to face the consequences of the law or you are going to face the consequences of the law. Well, as we see, this comes from God's original heart when he revealed the law in Exodus chapter 32 we're, I'm just going to kind of paraphrase all this. Uh, in Exodus chapter 32, this is when um, Moses, he, he comes down off Mount Sinai after he just received what? He received the law from the Lord, okay, in a bunch of different directions about the tabernacle, all these different things. Well, when he came down the mountain the first time, what did he find? He found the Israelites worshiping the golden calf. And what happened? In his astonishment, he dropped the Ten Commandments and they broke. It's a picture of us, for us, that the law was broken before it was ever given. The law was literally broken before it was ever ever given to the people. But what happens after that? Well, after that, in the next chapter, in Exodus chapter 33, God calls him up again. He says, come on, Moses, come up again. I need to give you this law again. And, And Moses gets in this conversation. Lord, show me your glory. So the next time, When Moses comes up the mountain in Exodus chapter uh, 34, we see that before God gives him the law again, what did he do? He passed before Moses and he proclaimed the name of the Lord. He said, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth-keeping mercy for thousands. That's how God introduces himself to Moses before he gives him the law again. What's the point? The law was supposed to be filtered through God's character. Yes, this is what the law dictates, but God is merciful and gracious. So I have to filter his word through who he is. The law has to be filtered through the character of the lawgiver. It was impossible to keep the law. God gave room for mercy and grace and forgiveness, even in the Old Testament. Good example is in Deuteronomy chapter 21. If you want to write it down, I'm going to paraphrase this too. Deuteronomy 21, uh, verses 18 to 21. It talks about the rebellious son, right? And what does it say? If you have a rebellious son, the law dictates that you take that son out of the city gates and the whole city, the whole village, they stone him to death. Anyone here have a rebellious son? Don't raise your hand. Don't raise your hand. It was a trick. Okay, I was just seeing 
or a rebellious daughter, a rebellious child across the board. Well, the Old Testament law would say, hey, they deserve to be stoned outside of running springs. Take them down the mountain or something. (laughs) But Jesus reveals the heart of the law. Jesus represents God's heart. And he comes and he explains to the Pharisees, uh, while he rebukes them in Matthew chapter 23, he he tells them, hey, you've neglected the weightier matters of the law. Okay, you're tithing your seasonings. That's all good. But you've neglected mercy. You've neglected justice. You've neglected faith. You got caught up with all these little details. But all of that stuff was supposed to be filtered through mercy and grace and justice in the character of God, the entire law was to be filtered through God's character. In fact, we see a story elaborating on that rebellious son in Deuteronomy. In Luke chapter 15, the prodigal son, right? He's a rebellious son. He uses his whole inheritance, just wiling out and partying. And what happens when he comes back home? He's hoping that he'll be able to be a servant, right? At this point, he's eating pig slop. Things aren't looking very good. He comes back home, and what happens? The father, he welcomes him in with open arms. Levitically, in Deuteronomy, that kid deserved to die. He deserved to be stoned to death. But Jesus shows us an example that mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Yes, there's a place for consequences for sin. Absolutely. But mercy triumphs over judgment. This is exactly the decision that David is making. This is, I believe, a commendable decision. But he's making this decision for someone else's child and not his own. Look what happens. It's 2 Samuel chapter 14, verse 12. Therefore, the woman said, please let your maidservant speak another word to my Lord, the king. And he said, say on. So the woman said, why then have you schemed such a thing against the people of God? For the king speaks this thing as one who is guilty and that the king does not bring his banished one home again. Dude, this woman straight up rebukes the king. She just don't, why are you scheming against God? You're saying that my son deserves mercy for killing his brother, but your son doesn't deserve mercy for killing his brother. And she says, this isn't just against Absalom. This is against all the people of God. You scheme such a thing against the people of God. Whether this woman figured this out or whether Joab communicated this to her, they recognized that Absalom was a threat. As long as there was bitterness between David and Absalom, Absalom was a threat to the kingdom of Israel. This is point number three. Others suffer when we don't reconcile. Others suffer when we don't reconcile. This isn't just affecting David and Absalom. This is truly affecting the whole nation of Israel. And it will affect the whole nation of Israel as we get into the civil war in the next few chapters. But this is also obviously true for us. In Hebrews chapter 12, in Hebrews chapter 12, Verse 15 says, looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble. And by this, many become 
defiled. If we're not pursuing peace, if we're not pursuing reconciliation, it doesn't just affect us, it affects, once again, the people around us. By many are defiled from our bitterness, from your bitterness, from the individual bitterness, many are defiled. It never just affects you or even you and the person that you have the issue with. It affects many people. In Ephesians chapter 4 uh, verses 26 to 27, if you want to write that one down. Ephesians 4, 26 to 27, it says, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. And then it says, or give place to the devil. Those two things are connected. Why? Well, when we let the sun go down on our wrath and we don't deal with our issues and the sun keeps going down on our wrath over and over and over again, and we build up bitterness and resentment and all these different things, we give place to the devil. Literally, we're giving the devil a position in our lives. We're giving the devil a place in the church. And what is the devil going to do with his position? He's going to cause division. He's going to cause destruction. That's his desire every single time. And when we don't deal with our issues when we don't pursue reconciliation and unity we're just saying come on in doors wide open come into my life come into my family's life come into the family of god's life we're inviting division in the church this woman in her wisdom whether it was her wisdom or joab's recognizes that this lack of reconciliation literally affects the whole nation second samuel Chapter 14, verse 14. For we will surely die and become like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Yet God does not take away a life, but he devises means so that his banished ones are not expelled from him. The thought there is, as she says, for we will surely die and become like a water spilled on the ground, is, is there's only a short period of time, okay? Before, uh, if, if we wait too long, we're going to end up dying. The time to reconcile is today. We need to reconcile now, not put it off and put it off and put it off. There's going to come a time that each and every one of us, unless the rapture happens first, that we're going to die. And what do you think if we have the chance to really think through life before we die, as we're lying on our deathbeds, you think we're going to be thinking about all the things that we have or don't have? No, certainly. We'll be thinking about the relationships that we have and don't have. And how could I have done this thing differently? This is the wisdom of this woman. She says, you better do something about it now because one day you're going to be dead. And guess what happens? You don't get to reconcile with the living when you're dead. It just doesn't work like that. And then she ties it back to God. Look at that second sentence in verse 14. Yet God does not take away a life, but he devises means so that his banished ones are not expelled from him. Her point, God doesn't always give his children the consequences that he deserves and, and that they deserve. In fact, it says he devises means. God devises means so that we can be reconciled to him. What are those means? What is that plan? It's point number four. The cross makes reconciliation possible. The cross makes reconciliation possible. God had a plan from the beginning to bring reconciliation between us and him. And it was through the Lord's death, burial, and resurrection. Let me show you. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we mentioned this, but I want to read it for you. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, 
says, for the love of Christ compels us because because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died and he died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself, through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. The point of the text is a reminder about what Jesus did so that we could be reconciled with God. Jesus paid the ultimate price on the cross, God's plan from the beginning, so that we can go from enmity against God to harmony with God, to be in unity with God. And the only way that is possible is through the cross. Through the cross, we don't have to face the ultimate consequences of our sin, being hell and death. We're given more than we deserve. We get heaven. We get eternal life with God. See, God, as this woman communicates, he devises a means. He makes a way for man to be reconciled with him. And before we can be reconciled with man, we got to be reconciled with God. It always starts with that vertical relationship before we can engage effectively in those horizontal relationships. I got to make sure my heart's right with God before I start dealing with issues with another person. Because if I come to a person and I say I'm reconciling, but if I'm coming with bitterness and resentment and wrath, that's not reconciliation. I'm just causing more division. So I got to recognize, look at what God did for me so that I could be reconciled with him and i need to forgive this person as christ has forgiven me which is means complete forgiveness and now i'm able to come to this person and go hey yo what you did to me is nothing compared to what i did to god this isn't actually as big as i made it out to be now i'm in a position to reconcile but i gotta first focus on the reconciliation that i have with god that only came through the cross see jesus He paid it all so that we could be reconciled. He pursued reconciliation with us through his death and resurrection. If God does all of that to pursue reconciliation with us, don't you think we should put a little bit of effort into pursuing reconciliation with each other? I mean, if we're called to imitate God, if Jesus is the way and he went through all this pain and heartache just to be back in right relationship with us, We can afford to give a little effort, right? It might be hard. It might cause heartache. It might be painful physically, emotionally, spiritually. Reconciliation usually comes at a cost. It did for Jesus. We can expect it to for us as well. 2 Samuel chapter 14. Verse 15. Now therefore... I have come to speak of the thing to my Lord, the king, because the people have made me afraid. And your maidservant said, I will now speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his maidservant. 
For the king will hear and deliver his maidservant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the inheritance of God. Your maidservant said, the word of my Lord, the king, will now be comforting. Or as the angel of God, so is my Lord, the king, in discerning good and evil. And may the Lord your God be with you. Then the king answered and said to the woman, please do not hide from me anything that I ask you. And the woman said, please let me uh, let my Lord, the king speak. So the king said, is the hand of Joab with you in all of this? And the woman answered and said, as you live, my Lord, the king, no one can turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my Lord, the king has spoken for your servant. Joab commanded me and he put all these words in the mouth of your maidservant. To bring about this change of affairs, your servant Joab has done this thing, but my Lord is wise, according to the wisdom of the angel of God, to know everything that is in the earth. So this woman is just trying to butter David up. Man, you are so good. You are so wise. You understand good and evil. It's good for my son not to be condemned for the mistake that he made. Yes, he deserves mercy and so does your son. And there's part of this that's a little deceitful. Okay, she just brought it to him. She, she made the point, right? She says, why are you scheming against the children of God? Why have you, uh, basically banished your son? And then she kind of like brings it back and starts focusing on herself. Like she's trying to make the point indirectly, but she kind of went a little over the top and now she's pulling back a little bit again, buttering David up, but David sees right through it. And I don't know how he knows this must've been from the Lord as, as the lady says, he says, is the hand of Joab in all this? You better tell me the truth. This sounds like, this seems like something from Joab. I don't know how he figured it out. The Lord, again, he may have revealed it to him, but David is wise and this one's not getting past him. Joab was behind all this. So in verse 21, he's going to confront Joab. It says, and the king said to Joab, all right, I have granted this thing. Go, therefore, bring back the young man, Absalom. The plan worked. David decided that Absalom can come back to the kingdom. Joab knew exactly how to get to David. Joab responds in verse 22, look, then Joab fell to the ground on his face and bowed himself and thanked the king. And Joab said, today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord, O king, and that the king has fulfilled the request of his servant. Look at how ecstatic. I've never seen Joab do anything like this right? Joab is ecstatic. He is so happy. This is like this blood hungry man, but he wants reconciliation so bad. He's happy now, but he's going to be very disappointed later. Why? Because regardless of his efforts to prevent the kingdom likely from being divided, Absalom's going to come back and he's going to cause that civil war. And guess who ends up killing Absalom? It's Joab. Okay. He's happy now, probably regret this in the future. The text continues, verse 23. <clears throat> so Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, let him return to his own house, but do not let him see my face. So Absalom returned to his own house, but he did not see the king's face. So reconciliation hasn't happened yet. He just let him back in the kingdom, but he says, I don't want to see him. Okay, he can come back and live with us, but I want nothing to do with him. We see earlier in David's life, even with Amnon, 
it's, he let his sons get away with too much. He never punished Amnon for raping Tamar. He let them do whatever they want. Okay, he was like a, a kind of like an absentee father, even though they were all in the kingdom. And now here we see him being a little too harsh. In my opinion, he's not pursuing any type of reconciliation. And we see this and any parent can fall into this. Uh, at one point he's doing being too lax and too gracious. And, and on the other hand, he, he's enforcing too much discipline. So it's like no matter what David can do, he can't do anything to be a good parent. He's just a bad parent. Every time he makes a decision, it's just this bad thing. How do we find the balance with that? Biblically speaking, how do we know when to to give mercy and grace and forgiveness? And, and how do we know when to give discipline? Not that those two things don't intermingle. They absolutely do. But the reality of it is it all comes from our pursuit of God and our relationship with God. And knowing the individuals, the children or the friends or family members or whoever that were un, uh, is under our authority and, and recognizing, hey, in this situation, she needs grace. She just, we just need to let this go. We need to forgive her. No consequence. In this situation, he needs discipline. He needs some serious consequence. And in fact, he may need some consequences that don't really fit the crime. That are like overboard so he gets the lesson. That's what he needs right now. The only way we'll know that is by pursuing God and gaining wisdom from him. But as we look at the Lord and how he deals with his children, he doesn't deal with us all equally. He loves us all equally, but he doesn't deal with us all equally. He knows what each one of us need. He knows when some of us need discipline. He knows when some of us need mercy and grace. He knows us so well that he knows, this is how I'm going to produce what I need to produce in them. They need mercy right now. They don't need the consequences right now. They need a severe consequence. Mimicking our perfect heavenly father. That's the way we ought to go about it. Recognizing when an individual needs that mercy. Recognizing when they need the discipline. And recognizing when they need some form of combination between the two. David, he won't allow Absalom to see his face. At least for now he won't. Look what happens. Verse 25. Now, in all Israel, there was no one who was praised as much as Absalom for his good looks. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, at the end of every year, he cut it because it was heavy on him. When he cut it, he weighed the hair of his head at 200 shekels according to the king's standard. To Absalom were born three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a woman of beautiful appearance. Now, these three verses are kind of just like put in there. They almost seem like out of place, but the author is doing this on purpose. He's trying to help us understand how the people see Absalom because it's really going to pick up in the next chapter. But we see how Absalom is described, right? He's very handsome. He's He's got this long flowing hair. If you're into long flowing hair, I don't know. But the people apparently liked his long flowing hair. It weighed uh, five and a half pounds a year. Like cutting off five. Like the, what's that for for the people with, with cancer? The locks of love, right? They would have loved Absalom, right? Five and a half pounds of hair. That's a serious amount of hair, hair. But the point of this whole thing is, is the people loved Absalom because of his outward appearance. Notice this. There is not one word said about his character. Does it remind you of anyone? This is very similar to the details that we gain from King Saul. 
He's just another King Saul. We'll see it even more in the next chapter. But if you remember, way back in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 2, in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 2, it describes King Saul and it says, he was the most handsome man in all of Israel. He was uh, a head and shoulders taller than everyone else. He was tall. He was dark. He was handsome. He was the man that you looked like. I want him to lead me. At least that's what the people of Israel thought. The people of Israel aren't much different now than they were back then. See, the people, they're still looking at the outward appearance. But God, God's still looking at the heart. What the people see is Absalom is a great looking man, got beautiful hair. He's got a great family. He's got it going. He's very wise, all these different intellectual, yada, 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 crafty. But God looks at him and says, this is trouble. This guy is rebellious. He's unrepentant. And he's going to cause serious problems for the kingdom of Israel, much like King Saul did. See, we fall into this trap in this world as people. Believe it's part of our sinful nature that we're always looking at the outward appearance. If they look the part, maybe they can play the part. But the Bible, the Bible promotes personal godliness over public giftedness every time we even when we look at the qualifications for an elder it doesn't talk about any gifts it says you have to have the ability to teach and everything else is about character god wants to make that know it's about the character yeah gifts are important but they're secondary to the character it's easy for any of us to fall into the trap of praising the absalom He's the man. He looks like he can do it. And we look at that outward appearance and think they're great. We're not discerning what's going on in their hearts. And people are led astray by Absalom's all the time. It's also important to note that Absalom practically would have been the rightful heir to the throne. He was the third son of David. He killed Amnon, so he didn't have to worry about him. And Chiliab, his other son, the second son, we don't see anything uh, about him other than that he was born and he was a son. So he might have died of natural causes. Um, we don't know how he died. So, But we don't see him in the picture. Uh, the assumption is that he's not in the picture. So Absalom would have naturally been the rightful heir to the throne. Second Samuel 14, verse 28. And Absalom dwelt two full years in Jerusalem, but he did not see the king's face. So two years have gone by, okay? It's been three years that he was an outcast, right? Now two more years, so it's been five years, and reconciliation still hasn't happened. That's a long time to go by without addressing an issue. That's a really long time. And there might be people in this room that have issues that they haven't dealt with. They're they're even longer. It's been decades. I don't know. But I want you to think about what's going on in Absalom's mind. I want us to have a little bit of compassion for Absalom. Okay, Absalom killed his brother because she raped his sister. Okay, I'd be pretty upset about that. I don't know if I'd kill him, but I'd be pretty upset about that as well. I don't know if I'd come up with this crafty plan. Probably not. But still... We kind of understand kind of where he's coming from. And now his dad won't want anything to do with him. Absalom had to instill justice because his dad was being complacent and he wouldn't do anything. He wasn't sticking up for his kids. And now five years go by and dad won't talk to me. Imagine what's going through his mind. 
my dad doesn't love me. My dad doesn't like me. He doesn't accept me. Shoot, he won't even let me see his face. Imagine the internal turmoil. And you think this didn't make a, uh, have an effect on his relationship with God? I guarantee it did. I don't know what his relationship with God was like. But David, reflecting that father image, he's not reflecting God the Father very well. So look what Absalom does here in verse 29. Therefore, Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but he would not come to him. And when he sent again the second time, he would not come. So he said to his servant, see Joab's field is near mine and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. And Absalom's servant set the field on fire. So Absalom keeps sending to Joab, hey, go tell dad I want to talk to him. Joab's not telling him because he knows his dad already said, hey, I don't want to talk to him. I don't want to see his face. But Absalom is determined. So he sets Joab's field on fire. Two things, well, probably more than that, but a couple of things we can pull from it is we recognize how bad Absalom wants to be in fellowship with his dad. He just wants to see him. He just wants to talk to him. He's willing to go to great lengths to make sure he has that conversation with pops. But we also see the wickedness. Absalom is determined to get whatever he wants, regardless of the cost. And we'll see that character quality play itself out in the next few chapters. So Absalom, he says, this conversation with Joab, verse 31, Then Joab arose and came to Absalom's house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? And Absalom answered Joab, Look, I sent to you saying, Come here so that I may send you to the king to say, Why have I come from Gesher? It would be better for me to be there still. Now, therefore, let me see the king's face. But if there is iniquity in me, let him execute me. So... Absalom explains to Joab why, obviously, the only reason he wanted to come back is so that he could be in a relationship with his father. He was staying with his grandfather before that. It's not like he was uh, just getting by. He was in a good position. His grandpa was a king. But then he says here in verse 32, Now, therefore, let me see the king's face, but if there is iniquity in me, let him execute me. So Absalom's saying, I don't think I did anything wrong. <laughs> That's what he's saying. I don't think I did anything wrong. He thinks the murder of his brother was completely justified. If his dad wants to have that conversation and say, no, there is iniquity in you and I'm going to execute you fine. He's basically saying, tell him to either execute me or have a relationship with me. But this thing in the middle, it's just not working. So finally, Absalom gets what he wants in verse 33. So Joab went to the king and told him. And when he had called for Absalom, he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. Then the king kissed Absalom. Absalom acts like he's in submission to the king. We will see that is not the truth in the next chapter. We don't know if he had ulterior motives through all of this or if he really just did want to reconcile with his father. But we do see that reconciliation happens, but it only happens in part. This isn't complete reconciliation. It's point number five, last point. Pursue complete reconciliation. Pursue complete reconciliation. This is partial, partial reconciliation. Why? Because they didn't address the issue. 
there's no indication that they talked about this stuff. Hey, listen, man. Um, yeah, I understand why you did it, but it was still wrong. Whatever the case may be, David uh, addressing his anger towards Absalom for killing Amnon. Uh, Absalom addressing his bitterness for David for making him an outcast and not letting him be in fellowship with his father. None of these issues ever get dealt with. And if we want reconciliation, the issues have to get dealt with. We will see these problems because they weren't dealt with are going to blow up in the next few chapters. And this blowing up is going to result in the kingdom being divided. It was Jesus. He said in Mark chapter 3 verse 24. In Mark three twenty-four, he said a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. It can't. He's speaking of the enemy, but it applies to all kingdoms. A kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. Why? Because where there's division, there's destruction. And a kingdom that's divided is bound to be destroyed. Now we make up and are a part of the kingdom of God. And if we want the kingdom of God to be unified, there has to be a pursuit of reconciliation. What did Jesus say the night before he died? One of the things he said, one of the most crucial things after he said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. And he said, by this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's the kingdom of God. It's to be defined by love. It's to be defined by unity. So when there's issues, we're given place to the devil. That's inviting not just division, but later on destruction. But if we pursue reconciliation, we're pursuing unity and portraying love. And that's what Jesus said. By love, we'll all know, all will know that you're my disciples. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, thank you for your word, God, and we thank you that you've given us the ministry of reconciliation in light of the reconciliation that you perform through the cross, God, bringing us back to you through your son. Lord, I pray that we would consider the relationships in our lives that need to be reconciled, that you would give us wisdom by your spirit. If there aren't any, great, Lord. Uh, if there are, I pray that you would help us understand how to walk through those issues, that we would constantly pursue unity, that we would recognize when we don't deal with our issues, we're literally giving the devil a position in our lives and a position in the church, a position that he doesn't deserve, that he shouldn't be in. God, so help us battle against that by pursuing unity. In Jesus' name, amen.